please stand with me if you're able and take out your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 3. Our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go in the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray before we uh, look at God's word together. Lord, we now ask once again that you would please minister to ourselves this morning by way of your word. I ask that you would just captivate our hearts today, arrest our attention, remove all distractions, concerns, enable me to communicate your truth, I pray, with clarity and by your Spirit's power. Again, we ask for the glory of your Son, name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. The lame leap for joy. We begin in chapter 3, the book of Acts this morning. We began our study of the Acts of the Apostles, really the Acts of God through the Apostles, seven weeks ago. Um, so far, uh, we looked at the opening section of the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, fulfilling Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7, followed by the apostle's appointment of a successor to Judas, fulfilled by Matthias. We then entered into chapter 2, which is the miracle of Pentecost and the signs that accompanied it. When 120 people gathered in an upper room together, were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were given the ability to speak in foreign languages of which they had no knowledge. And then, the sermon Peter preaches, providing an explanation to what occurred at Pentecost, and he begins, chapter 2, verse 15, he says, "...these men are not drunk as you suppose." That's the introduction of all introductions to sermons right there. 
isn't it? These, they're not drunk, as you suppose. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. All kinds of people from all kinds of places. Jesus, the Nazarene, verse 22, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. You put him to death, but God raised him up from the dead, for it was not possible for him to be held by its power. He was raised the third day as the Old Testament foretold. His flesh would not see corruption. As the psalmist said, Psalm 16, verse 10, he wouldn't be in the grave long enough for his body to undergo decay. Peter brings it. He did this to reconcile sinners to God. It's a grace gift. Peter then called his hearers to trust in Christ. He demanded that they repent, that they believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. To be saved from sin's penalty is to be saved from God's wrath by way of God's grace. In that way is Jesus. I am the way, said Jesus. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way. After Peter's first sermon, that was his first sermon. We read, 3,000 souls were added and integrated into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are 19 major sermons and defenses recorded in the book of Acts. Eight of them were preached by Peter. One by James, one by Stephen, and nine by the Apostle Paul, which tells us, that 25% of the book of Acts is made up of bold, spirit-led, spirit-empowered preaching of God's word. They all preach Christ. Serving as a reminder, we looked at this last week, that the epicenter of a true church is biblical, Christ-centered exposition. Which means the criterion for Sunday worship is not whether the pastor was funny, even though I know I am. <laughs> yeah, right. It, it's not that the band was great. It's not whether or not we received a blessing having our felt needs met. The only criterion acceptable for Lord's Day worship in the church is whether or not God received the blessing of his people in accordance with his word. That's the criterion, just in case you're wondering. Last week, we looked at the exemplary church in verses 42 to 47. We see there Christians who love and are continually devoted to doctrine. You can't say you love God if you don't love God's word. They're continually devoted to the doctrine of the apostles, uh, believers in Jesus, 
we, we see modeled there, um, meet together regularly. They share meals together. They share life together. They practice hospitality. They pray together. They live and they give generously. Here now, we enter into chapter 3 and this remarkable episode of, of a lame man, a crippled man who is miraculously enabled to walk. You know, perhaps you've come to passages such as this thinking, if Christ is able to heal this man like this, why does he not heal every single person with an infirmity? Or as the age-old argument goes, um, if God is good and, and, and can at any time do good, why doesn't he? That's a legitimate question for an unbeliever. But, but that's a question that fails to consider the context as to why God ever performs miracles in the first place amidst a fallen world that he cursed because of sin. Who cursed the universe when Adam sinned? God did. Friends, as we work our way through Acts, it's important that we understand this man, this man here in Acts 3, was not healed, nor is anyone else healed, simply because God considered this a kind thing to do. Miracles in the New Testament, miracles in the New Testament are always a means to an end. The end being the public declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, primarily, the miracles, primarily performed before Jewish people. Miracles in the name of the Messiah, they rejected. A means to an end. Nowhere in Scripture, beloved, are we promised that God is going to move through the earth, making people's lives easier by healing all of their ailments. Now, he could easily do that, amen. Speak and it's done. But God is working out a much larger and more significant plan, and that, beloved, is a healing that comes primarily through the preaching of his gospel, dealing with people's sins, putting them away, blotting them out. That's the healing of all healings. That is the miracle of all miracles. He has promised, however, one day... He will heal all of our infirmities, giving us a resurrected bodies, just like our glorified Lord Jesus Christ, yet future. Are you here? Are you with me? 
All right. So here then, God's purpose for this lame man isn't simply to create a ministry of mercy for the apostles. I mean, if that were the case, Peter would have gone around healing every single disease, but he doesn't do that. This man, this lame man, according to God's sovereign decreed will, his sovereignly decreed plan was chosen to be sitting in this place on this day to receive this great blessing so that he might serve as a means by which the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ would go out with power. That's what Acts 3 is all about. An act that mirrors our Lord Jesus Christ's own ministry, as we shall see in just a few moments. Look at the account. Verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. The ninth hour, this would be 3 p.m. Sixth hour, or the first hour being 6 a.m. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was at the temple gate, and there he was begging. Well, here, as Peter and John ascend the steps for afternoon prayer, their attention is drawn to a lame man as they approach the temple gate. Now, there are many ways for a person to become lame. It could be through a disease, um, by way of an accident. Um, old age can de debilitate us to where we use lose the use of our legs or certain motion of our limbs. I have a difficult time reaching over my head with my left arm because I'm getting old. I'm deteriorating. You know, I've known elderly people who enjoy sitting at the local park, the playground, watching children play. And these are relatives of mine. They, they, they tell me they love to remember what it was like to be able to run, leap, and climb. Or, for those who are subject to a wheelchair, remembering what it's like just to be able to walk. They love watching children. This man's lameness was congenital. There's no remembering for this guy. He was born this way. Never had he even stood on his own two feet, let alone walk, climb, or leap. Those are abilities and experiences we often take for granted. Amen? Do you take for granted just jumping out of bed? This man was over 40 years old. Told that in chapter two, 4, verse 22. He was over 40 years old, and most likely, ever since his teen years, family and or friends carried him along to this gate that separated the courts of worship at the temple. This gate, beautiful. Josephus, the historian, records that this gate was 75 feet high, 65 feet wide, made of Corinthian bronze, 
covered with silver and gold that led into the temple precinct. Imagine that. Next to this ornate gate, next to this entry of magnificence was this lame beggar. Whom, verse 2, they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. I mean, this is the only way this brother could survive. Stationed in a very strategic place. And here, Peter and John approach this gate And he asked for money. Verse 3, when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and he said, look at us. Notice they they fixed or they directed their gaze on this man. It means to, to, to behold earnestly to fasten one's eyes upon this this is this is to to dig in with with eye-to-eye contact look at us now that's very significant if you've ever watched people and what they do with their eyes when they approach a beggar a beggar on the street, it's a very typical human reaction in the presence of a beggar to avert your gaze, to appear busy, distracted. It's like when you pull up to a stoplight and a beggar is out there on the median, you know how they stand, and you start fiddling with your dashboard or you drop something. So as not to look them in the eye to avert your your, your gaze as though that person didn't exist. It's very common. It's a very human response. If anyone was accustomed to people approaching him and looking the other way, it was this cat. So emphasizing now direct eye contact, Peter said, look at us. They direct their gaze on him He says, look at us. Likely, this lame beggar was looking down or looking around or probably looking at their hand. What are they going to do with their hand? Are they going to go for a coin purse? Are they going to go for their wallet? He says, look at us. That's the scene. So with that anticipation, that is, looking at their hands, Peter emphasizing direct eye contact, look at us. He looks at them with anticipation of receiving from them. Verse 5, he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. So on the occasion of this man's monetary expectation, Peter speaks these very, very well-known words. Verse 6, but Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, lame man, walk. Now, at first this man must have been um, certainly disappointed. 
probably distressed, you know, thinking, what, 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 wait a minute, time out. You say, look at me, and now you tell me you're broke. You have no money. You fill my heart with expectation. You tell me you're broke. His, his heart must have sunk. Okay, and then you tell me to walk? What is this, some kind of cruel joke? And it would seem like a cruel joke, except for verse 7. And seizing him. By the right hand, he raised him up. Peter bends down, grabs his hand, pulls him to his feet, and then something extraordinary happens. A miracle happens. And notice immediately, his feet and his ankles were strengthened. This is an authentic miracle. It's what C.S. Lewis called an interference with nature by supernatural power. This is the power of God, friends. Peter did not heal this man. There's nothing innate within Peter that could cause this. Nothing within this man. Peter's words alone indicate that the apostles were a direct conduit for the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This is resurrection power in Christ's name, the resurrected one. He commands him, notice, he commands him to do something that is impossible for him to do, walk. And then God unleashes his power. In the name of Jesus, the Nazarene. Let me make sure we have the right Jesus here. You all know the one, the Nazarene. You know the one they crucified. Jesus was a very common name, remember? Jesus the Nazarene. So, so it's the name of Jesus that signifies Peter's authority. He appeals to the name above all names. So in, in response to, to Peter's appeal to the authoritative name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, pulling this man up, immediately this lame man born this way is healed. Now, when Jesus healed, he had no need to appeal to a higher authority, did he? He didn't have to appeal to the name of Yahweh. In John 10, 30, Jesus said this, I and the Father are one. When he said that, what was the response of the Pharisees? They picked up stones to stone him. Why? Uh, they gave the reason. Because you being a man, make yourself God. Don't you dare ever say that Jesus never declared to be God. That's why they wanted to stone him. For declaring to be deity. So as God in human flesh, Jesus, the Nazarene, there was no need for him to ever have to appeal to a higher authority. Okay, however... However, the healings that Jesus performed 
also served as a means to an end. And that end is the same as the apostles' end, that there's only one who has authority to forgive sins. There's only one who can save you from your sins. Remember in Mark chapter 2? Jesus is in Galilee. He's teaching in a house. He's preaching in a house. It was so packed, you couldn't get into the house. And this fellow is brought on a stretcher who is also lame, a cripple. His best buddies, by faith, try to get him into Jesus. They can't get into Jesus. They can't get into the house, let alone the room. So they climb the stairs the side of the house, they go up on the roof and, and they dig a hole through it and somehow determine where Jesus would be in the house and they lower the brother down on a stretcher. Jesus, we read, looks at them. He says he saw their faith and said, son, your sins are forgiven. You remember that? He's still crippled. Your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees started to think in their mind, (laughs) grumble, grumble, grumble. Who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, reading their hearts, said to them, let me ask you a question. Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven? After all, anyone can say that. Okay, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or say to this man, rise, take up your bed, and go home. Walk home. Which is easier? So proving that he had authority to forgive sins as God incarnate, he commanded that man, rise, take up your bed, go home. There's only one way you can do that, and that's by walking. Jesus said this to the Pharisees, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, I say, rise, go home. The man got up and went home. Jesus didn't have to appeal to the Father in heaven. He's equal with the Father who's in heaven. Here, Peter, by the power and authority of the crucified, risen, ascended, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ, demands this man to walk. He gets up and he walks. Verse 8. He does more than that, actually. (laughs) With a leap. With a leap. He stood upright and began to walk. This guy's never taken a step in his life. He's never been able to stand on his own feet in his life. And like a deer, he leaps up. Do you remember while John the Baptist was languishing in prison before they chopped his head off? You remember that? He was worrying about something. He was concerned about something. He seemed to have lost his assurance that Jesus was indeed Messiah. You remember that? And he sends word by some of his disciples back to Jesus, are you the one or are we to look for another? In other words, are you truly the promised Messiah? Now, 
Jesus did not respond by running to him and putting his arms around him and say, don't worry, big fella. Everything's going to be all right. I'm here for you to comfort you. Did he do that? No. What did he do? Jesus sent back word. What word did he send back? Scripture. Scripture. That beautiful mini apocalypse of Isaiah chapter 35 that foretells of one who will come. And when he comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf, they will be unstopped. And the lame will leap like a deer. That was a defining work that Messiah would do, prophesied 700 years before he ever came to this earth. And this man at this gate on this day becomes a visible symbol of the messianic age. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah, God's son, God in the flesh. Beautiful. When Jesus came, he inaugurated what? What did he inaugurate when he came? His what? Kingdom. Go ahead and say it. Kingdom. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom when he came. He commenced, that is, when he inaugurated his kingdom, he commenced recreation of all things. New heaven and a new earth that is yet to come, and his miracles, this miracle is a sign of that which is yet to come. Recreation of all things. A symbol shown right here in this man. Okay, even so, beloved, miracles like this happened infrequently. Miracles like this through the apostles were very, very rare. When the apostle Paul enters the scene, did he heal everybody in his sight? Did he? No. His young protege, his, his pastor in training, Timothy, had some type of stomach problem. He didn't heal him. He said, take a little wine for your stomach. Trophimus, we read, he left sick in Miletus. Why didn't he heal him? Did Paul ever calm a storm as Jesus did? No, he was shipwrecked three times. If he was going to do greater than miracles than Jesus, calming a storm or two would have been great. He was shipwrecked for the glory of God, for the purposes of God. And he had his own thorn in the flesh. Did he heal that? No. My grace, God says, is sufficient. You're suffering with whatever you suffer. God has a much larger plan. It's being worked out. Be encouraged by that. Amen? Presently, right now, on this day, creation, as Paul talks about in Romans 8, is groaning. Creation itself, we read, is groaning and suffering in birth pangs, waiting for what? The regeneration of all things inaugurated when he came. We're given a little foretaste of that great 
future event with little acts like this. Acts of God through the apostles for the glory of the name above all names, Jesus Christ. And that is to bring back and restore what's broken apart. Beginning first and foremost with that which is most important, men and women, ladies and gentlemen, children. It's not that cripples can get up and walk. It's that the souls of men and women who are en route to hell can be saved. That brokenness. That's the age in which we live, beloved. We're living in the age of the new creation inaugurated by Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We see it stage by stage, life by life, leading to a new heaven and a new earth. There will be no more pain or suffering, no more tears. Then. Verse 8, and he entered the temple with them with Peter and John. Notice, walking and leaping, he's still leaping. Praising God. This speaks volumes about the state of this man's spiritual condition, beloved. What's the priority in this man's life? Praise. Praise. Do you thank God for your salvation? And I mean regularly. Do you? And I want you to think about this if you do not. There is no greater miracle than, than the regeneration of the, the fallen, sinful heart of men and women. No greater miracle, friends. No greater miracle than that. And I just want to say, if you don't regularly thank God for your salvation, as this man is leaping and jumping and praising God, it's the priority of praise we see here, I want to encourage you, God, help me to remember to thank you for my salvation, friends. Seriously. You're going to heaven. You were on the broad, broad road leading to hell. And if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, the only one who can save you from God's punishment, which is hell, the command is to repent and believe on Christ and you'll be saved from God, his wrath, by God, his grace, for the glory of God and to be able to be with God forever. Salvation. The greatest healing you can imagine. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his exposition of this, comments, Here, this man, leaping and jumping and praising, we see authentic Christianity. Christianity that shows itself in the heart and the life, the zeal, the joy, the praising of Christ is at center. At center. We don't want to be thankless people. Thanklessness is a sin. May we not be guilty of that sin. Though you're forgiven, who wants to go through life thankless? Saved from the wrath and the pit of hell by the one who took it upon himself on the cross. Here he leaps and here he praises. This man goes into the temple. This man is now the temple of God. If you're in Christ, you're the temple of the living God. Leaping, walking, praising, a leaping demonstration 
of the mighty power of Almighty God. And again, friends, it is no less miraculous when a soul is converted from darkness and brought into the light. I think we just take it for granted. So you got Christians today out for, let's look for healings. Let's go to a healing ministry. You know those, those on the TV? That's a bunch of nonsense, hocus pocus. You, see, you ever see a paraplegic raised up out of a wheelchair on the TV hocus pocus they show? No, it's always a guy with back pain or shin splints. Yeah, I'm healed of my shin splints. I was in South Africa. I'm watching a man do this hocus-pocus type of healing, you know. People on canes throwing them in a pile. There was a man who was a true cripple in a wheelchair who's like this. And I watched that evangelist, quote-unquote, avoid that man. I didn't see him pulling him up out of his wheelchair. Does God heal? Can he do that today? You better believe he can. Very, very uncommon as he works out a much, much bigger plan. And it's raising dead hearts to life. That is, Jesus is the answer to all life's problems. Jesus is the answer to Ecclesiastes and the meaning of life. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. What advantage does man have in all his works which he does under the sun, S-U-N? Without the S-O-N, life under the S-U-N is meaningless. It is vain. Because all the answers to this life and where we're headed are found in the one, the S-O-N. So we mustn't miss the vivid illustration that this miracle that's granted to this lame man represents with regard to our salvation. Okay? Think about it. He's lame. He's born lame. All people are born what? Sinners. Lame. You do not have the ability to walk in a way that pleases God because you're born in sin. You're lame. This man was outside the temple. You're born, you're outside of Christ. You're outside of the one true God because of your nature. He's lame, he's outside the temple. People are outside the temple of God. Jesus is the temple of God. We're outside of his church, we're outside of the household of faith. Number three, he was begging. Sinners are beggars. And we're seeking satisfaction in everything and everywhere but God. And then, in that condition, this man was commanded to do something he could not do, and that is to walk. Born in this condition as sinners, we're commanded to do something we cannot do. Repent and believe. You cannot do that on your own. Well, I have free will. Yes, you do. You have free will to go through this life and turn left or turn right. I had free will to, put, to choose this tie out of all my ties this morning. 
But outside of Christ, dead in your transgressions and sins, your will is not free to walk and honor God because your will is subject to your nature, and your nature is in Adam, dead in transgressions and sins. You must be a made alive supernaturally by God the Holy Spirit who causes you to be born again. And Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see. quite a predicament. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, we're told that the natural man, it, doesn't, it does not say he will not. It says he cannot believe or repent. He cannot. His will is bound. He is enslaved to his nature. He is entirely unable to will fully walk in a way that pleases God. It's a helpless, lame situation. The command comes, repent and believe. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, the gospel comes to you this morning and commands you to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So I command you to repent right now and believe. In the name of Jesus Christ, that's a command. And if he's at work... The Spirit of God right now, he will enable you to respond to the command. What he commands, he enables you to command if he is indeed after you. Your response? Let's say I command you to do that in the name of Jesus Christ and you're not a believer. You know what you need to do? You need to cry out like a beggar. God, I can't believe. Make me believe. And he'll answer that. Because Jesus said elsewhere, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. You respond with a cry like that in, 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 in response to the command to repent and believe, you come to Christ, and you really want to come to Christ, he will not cast you out. So repent and believe, and you shall be saved. You hear me clear? Amen. So here a single soul leaps for joy. And, and so too, beloved, so too, every time someone is given spiritual life and they leap up with joy, it never, ever ceases just to amaze me. Life wrought within a dead soul. This man was physically healed, but he would go on to physically die. Amen? Now he's going to die. He, he's a child of God. He's spiritually alive in Christ. He's leaping in heaven right now. But again, friends, this miracle was a means to a greater end, and that is it was the means to a much greater miracle. And as we'll see next Lord's Day, the result is that 2,000 more souls were added to the church. Chapter 4, verse 4. That's the miracle. That was the purpose of this miracle. What did Jesus say in John 11? He who believes in me. Remember Lazarus died and they're so sad, the sisters. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have lived. 
Jesus said this, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Why? Because I am the resurrection and the life. So to be part of the second resurrection, which is future, you must experience the first resurrection of the soul. It's the first resurrection. You receive a glorified body in the end when he comes the second time. Verse 9. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him, notice, they were taking note of him as being the one, notice this, who used to sit at the beautiful gate. He's there, no more. He used to beg. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Friends, this was a bona fide miracle. This isn't some kooky Benny Hinn gathering. Or any other charlatan. Don't watch that stuff. It's phony baloney. Everyone in Jerusalem knew this man was a regular fixture at the Gate Beautiful. He used to sit there. Now he's leaping for joy, praising God. He got more than he ever asked for, didn't he? If you happen to be here this morning, you're not a Christian, you're crying out in your soul, God, what this guy just said, help me with that? I guarantee you he will. If that's the genuine response of your soul, that's the work of God in your soul. And I guarantee he will. If you could care less, if you couldn't care less, you're in a dangerous place. Okay, what's happening in Acts as we close up? What's happening in Acts is that the name of Jesus is being talked about in the temple of all places. He who is the true temple of the living God. Jesus is being prayed to, the one who is our great high priest. Jesus is being preached, the one who is the resurrection and the life. What did Jesus say during his public ministry? When the crowds were increasing and they were demanding a sign from him, do you remember what he said? Only an adulterous and wicked generation seeks after a sign. All right? There's only one sign that will be given to this generation, and it's the sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, not a whale, it was a fish. It was actually, we read in scripture, it was a fish prepared by God, prepared most certainly to swallow this man whole and vomit him out three days later, so too the Son of Man will be in the heart for three days and three nights. You want a sign from the Old Testament? I'm greater than Jonah. The one who went and preached to the Ninevites, I'm greater than Jonah. Jonah's ministry, Jonah's death in that fish foreshadows me. I died and was buried in the earth. I preached to a generation of people much more wicked than the Ninevites. As a matter of fact, on the last day, Nineveh will stand up against this generation that Jesus preached to as an indictment. 
What are they learning? They're learning by way of this miracle and all the other miracles and the preaching of Jesus that the Old Testament was all about him. They're understanding what the Old Testament really means. What are they preaching from? The Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. Peter's first sermons filled with Old Testament texts. His second sermons filled with Old Testament texts. Stephen, Old Testament texts. James, Old Testament. Paul, Old Testament. It all points to Christ. He fulfills it all. So this miracle in his name enables them to realize what the Bible's all about. It's about Jesus. So Jesus is the fulfillment, the one who is the cause of here and the reason for the amazement of these witnesses. Verse 11. While he, the man who used to beg, was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. Who wouldn't be? Friends, this is the calm before the storm. Right here. Persecution will soon begin to break out because just as Jesus is the reason for the amazement of these people who were transformed by the preaching of Jesus, Jesus is also the reason for the hatred and hostility of those opposed to him. We'll see. It's chapter 2. Verse, or chapter 4, verse 2, the Sadducees, here they are again, being greatly disturbed, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus, the resurrection from the dead, all because this lame man was healed. Two different reactions. Those reactions are the same to this day. Are you annoyed by the message of Christ or are you astonished by the work of Christ? Who alone is the way, the truth, and the life without whom no one comes to the Father. I pray and hope that you're just as amazed, just as, amazed as this group in the temple at the portico of Solomon were this day. So this event, in the name above all names, Jesus Christ, becomes, as we'll see next Lord's Day, Lord willing, the, the provocation for Peter's second famous sermon. And again, Lord willing, we'll look at it next week. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the glorious, indeed merciful miracles that we see throughout Scripture. Uh, but again, Lord, we know that they served a much greater purpose, and it was the preaching of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to remember that. Help us to rejoice in that. And help us most certainly to rejoice in the miracle above all miracles, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was caused for the resurrection of our own souls unto eternal life. May we always be astonished and forever thankful. And Lord, for any and all who are listening, who are not in Christ, who've rejected you and continue to do so, I pray that you'll do a stirring in their heart that would cause their wills to change and they will do that which is pleasing to you and that is believe in the gospel. For Christ's sake, once again we pray, amen.